I do try to protect the women on the one hand, but really what I've tried to do is change the environment. I think the the biggest thing that can benefit us as a society is just empathizing with one another, whether you're a man or a woman, and seeing how you're coming at things. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake Nichols. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Great. Today's episode is a very important one. I've been, uh, we've both been looking forward to this for some time now. Uh, we've always wanted to get these two guests on, and our guests are Deborah Benzel and Julie Politzis. Uh, let me int- please introduce yourself to our listeners. Hi, I'm Dr. Deborah Benzel, and I'm currently the vice chair of neurosurgery at Cleveland Clinic. Um, I've been in neurosurgery for almost 30 years, and I sort of do everything, but right now I focus primarily on spine, minimally invasive spine and peripheral nerve. Hi, I'm Julie Politzis. Uh, I'm a professor of neurosurgery at Albany Medical College. I'm the chair of the Department of Neuroscience and Experimental Therapeutics. Uh, I'm active both clinically and in research, and uh, my area of specialty is functional neurosurgery. Welcome. Um, so we want to dedicate an entire podcast just to the topics that we'll be touching on today. Um, I also want to add that since we only have two guests right now, we can't generalize your comments or opinions to all women in neurosurgery, just like we wouldn't do that for the men. Um, But maybe we can open by asking you to each um, kind of talk about your experiences so far and how you think your experiences and your training coming up were different or analogous to the young men, such as myself, coming up in the field now. Julie, you don't want to start? No, I, you know, I'm going to have you start just because I think um, just... See, men would never do this. The right. men would just jump right in yeah, and no, all I, the I, at each other's right. throats. Yeah. I, you know, I think, one of the things I've learned through a lot of my leadership and administrative uh, training is because I'm more senior, if I speak first, sometimes that that clouds what oh. a junior person would say. So whenever hmm. possible when I'm in meetings, I really try to bring out what the junior people who may, you know, so that their opinions are heard. So I was really trying to make sure that Julie had a chance to say what she wanted to do without being influenced. And not that Julie's junior. By. I mean, Julie, No, right? no, she's I not mean, junior, yeah. but... I'll take it. But, but <laughs> <laughs> she, I think she will admit that she's, she's a few years younger, and uh, um, she came into nursery a little after I did. Um, I think I would start off uh, and, and describe my life in nursery a little bit like... Uh, Ginger Rogers did when she was talking about her her partner Fred Astaire, who many consider you know one of the greatest dancers of all time, and she was asked and she said yes she says I did everything Ginger uh, I did everything that Fred Astaire did but I had to do it backwards in high heels, and that's sort of how I feel um, my life in neurosurgery has been I've had to do everything that the men did um, but I've had to do more I mean I had children during my residency. You know, never missed a day of work, but I had to, you know, do two full years pretty much when I was pregnant, um, you know, raising children. And just always the constant 
question of was I good enough. I mean, for me during my training, one of the most notable things was that for the male residents, it was assumed that they were competent and that they had the technical skills unless they proved otherwise. So if they messed up or they made a mistake, you know, they were taken to task just as anybody would be, but the assumption was that they were good enough. Whereas? For me, the assumption was that I wasn't good enough and I had to prove myself before I could win um, the cases, the ability to do things and that sort of thing. And then, of course, if I did make a mistake, and I'll be honest, you know, we're learning and you do make those mistakes, then the repercussions for that for me were always so much more significant. And I think that that carried through pretty much my, you know, my whole career, that there was always that sort of, you know, you take your first job, you know, they have one attitude towards a male coming out and then for the female. So you'd prove yourself and then you'd kind of get established and then maybe something else would happen. You'd have to do it all over again. So it's kind of like you have to do 140% for every 100% that the men do. Uh, that being said, it's been a great career, and it's been very rewarding, and I've met wonderful people and had uh, you know, wonderful relationships with men and, and women throughout the field and all the related fields, so um, I don't have any significant regrets. How about you, Julie? Um, I, I've been pretty fortunate because I have a, kind of a short memory, um, and I, you know, just kind of live day to day, and sometimes I'm oblivious to some of the things that go on around me. So, you know, I remember um, when I was picking uh, where to do my residency, one thing that was important to me was not to be a novelty. So I was fortunate enough to train where there was uh, already two women on staff, and um, you know, there was a female fellow, and there was a female senior resident. Wow, so, that's really unusual. <laughs> I know, You're back really then, lucky. right? That was 1990. <laughs> So you, even like today, yeah. there are a lot of women who have to train in a different environment. I'm sorry, I've no, interrupted you. Not at all. So you know, I think you know it was. I I remember when I was an intern, and you know, I was um, there were 25 surgical interns. I was the only woman, and um, again, still oblivious until I was rotating with one of my friends on the service, and he said, you know, it really bothers me how they treat you, and I hadn't known any differently. You and give us an example, like that someone takes you for a nurse, or what, like, uh, the, how the nurses would interact oh, okay. with me. You know how you know how the doctors would say, "Hey, can you make the coffee?" Things like this, and you know, I just was kind of going about my life and not thinking about it. And um, you know, I as I got more savvy to those things, you know, I started thinking about some of those interactions. And um, I, I read Deb's book, um, oh, which talk was about the book. Plug it. yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I only edited it. It's called "Heart of a Lion, Hands of a Woman: What Women Neurosurgery." what women neurosurgeons do, and it was in honor of the uh, 20th anniversary of women in neurosurgery. We're actually coming up on our 30th anniversary next year, so I'll put in a plug for all the big activities next year. But it was a, a collation of creative um, contributions from women across neurosurgery, so it was paintings, photographs, essays, um, poems that just tried to reflect what our experiences were, and I think Julie's probably referring to a number of the essays that talked about the struggles that many of the women had faced, and, and one of the things we hoped was that women like Julie and other women, even today, would be able to read it and realize that their struggles were the same, that there were other people that had the same struggles, and they could um, gather strength from that. Wow. Yeah, and I really, you know, for... 
looking at those struggles, any struggle that I was going through seemed more kind of day to day. <laughs> and so it, it kind of put it in perspective. And, you know, now uh, I'm very lucky uh, at, at Albany. We actually have um, three women neurosurgeons um, on staff. And I'm the most senior of those, and um, I kind of see my job as uh, protecting the junior women, whether they're neurosurgeons, whether they're residents and fellows, so that they don't have to deal with those issues. And I think there still are pointed issues. I think there's still a lot of differences um, in the day-to-day interactions residents have on the floor um, with different staff uh, with each other. Um, and, you know, so I, I think it's, there's still a lot of societal issues, um, that permeate into the workplace. Yeah. I, know, so, I know you have a lot of questions, but yeah. let me just, I mean, you know, a lot of the way I've approached it as I've gotten more senior and had the capacity to do that is that I do try to protect the women on the one hand, but really what I've tried to do is change the environment. So I've tried to, you know, impart to the whole team which behaviors are acceptable and not acceptable. And because of that, you know, it, it follows not just sexism, but racism. And, you know, if you have political beliefs, that's fine, but they're, you know, the OR lounge is not the place to express them. So it's teaching that all of it's about what are appropriate behaviors in the workplace. You can think anything you want in your house, in your bedroom, in your own home or whatever else, but when you're at work, there's certain behaviors that you have to follow, and so that helps to create a much more conducive environment to learning, to patient care, to quality outcomes, and all of that just by helping to change the behaviors. Yeah, so, and, and I'm going to echo what John Paul said because I feel like, you know, we have you on this podcast and we're talking about this one dimension of you. We really could just as easily be asking, asking about what kind of surgeries you do or what, you know, what kind of political ramifications are going on in neurosurgery. And so just focusing on this by definition is almost a little bit, uh, how do you say, gender biased, right? right? And <laughs> right. so we're going we're gonna to try to remedy that by bringing you back on for other podcasts. But I, yeah. I'm thinking back, at, you know, when I was a medical student, Fran Conley, who is a, is a striking and controversial figure in so many people's minds, but definitely one of the first women neurosurgeons that was trained, right? right. Um, she was the first professor, female professor in neurosurgery. Oh, is that right? Okay, mm-hmm. so that, yeah, that was a big deal. And I was a student when all that went down and it toppled uh, Jerry Silverberg as chair. Um, but I, I want to get a more granular detail because, you know, our listeners are pretty educated and sophisticated. And I, I was trying to put together a list of things, how the dimensions could be different between men and women in a broad sense, you know, things like, um, you know, opportunities that are offered or work-life balance, uh, promotion, pay disparities. And of course, there's this whole issue of like sexual harassment and all that. But maybe you could tone in on how, how you see it's, it might be really different and, and how you've overcome. Maybe start with Julie. I just want to pull up this meme that I recently saw that kind of explained to me some of the difference. It's a popular one right now, like on Instagram. So it says, every day men leave their homes with no bag, no water bottle, no lip balm, no hand sanitizer, no extra layer in case they get cold, just keys in a wallet. And I think that is I think that's a pretty accurate stereotype of how men and women um, approach things. And so when we're trying to train um, people or when people are applying for the next level of jobs, um, you know, I think 
men tend to take that key and wallet approach and women want to make sure that everything is, is just right. And, you know, there's actually been articles talking about this and the confidence gap about how many, um, if a woman's going to apply for a new job that's a little bit outside her comfort zone, how many boxes she has to tick um, in order to meet that qualification. And she perceives it in general terms, uh, you know, 65 or 70 percent men, you know, they have like a third of the qualifications they're applying. So let me ask you about that a little deeper. So are you talking about the internal aspect of the person, meaning the woman, or are you talking about the external world, mm -hmm. how they view them? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I think this is something, I don't know, you know, because I think this is something that we're raised, you know, there's the difference between nature and nurture here, and I don't think that's been parsed out. Um, and, you know, then I think everybody... Everybody has stereotypes, whether they're wrong or right, so, you know, other people may perceive um, that as well. I think it comes back a little bit to what I started off with, assumption. So if a guy applies for a job and, you know, he's only got 35% of the qualifications and he's never had administrative responsibilities, there is this, you know, the outside world will assume, oh, well, he'll learn them or he can grow into them or whatever, whereas if they look at a woman, they might, you know, say, well, she's never... Well, you know, she did 80% of the job, but she hasn't done that little 20%. I mean, you know, the studies are, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with these. You know, you take CVs, you change the names, and you put them to a search group, and the same CV with a female name will get ranked lower than a male. You know, so it is, it is a societal thing. I mean, my, you know, my latest, mon I mean, I love your meme. I think that's really terrific, but I mean... Uh, uh, my latest mantra is that, you know, we've spent a lot of time over the last 25, 30 years, you know, through wins and through a lot of other efforts to try to empower women, to teach women better leadership skills, to teach them how to be more effective negotiators, to whatever. And we've been focusing on making the women better so that they can be more prepared for you know, applying for and entering leadership positions and all the rest of it. In fact, the problem is... The system, and I'm not saying the men, I'm saying the system because women will rank those CVs differentially just as frequently as the men will or almost as frequently. So we have to really address the system issues and again it comes back to the behavioral expectations and systems expectations about um, you know, promotions, hiring, and, and, and those sorts of things. And for our listeners, WINS, W-I-N-S, stands for Women in Neurosurgery. Correct, right? and yeah. it's um, it was an organization that was founded in 1990 with a small group of women, most of us residents actually at the time, who just felt that we needed a network. It's grown into something much bigger over the years. You were president too, Julie, weren't you? I was, and you know, <laughs> what was exciting about um, my tenure was uh, that was when WINS went from the, being an independent organization to uh, one of the sections. And, you know, I think the time was right for that because even 10 years beforehand, um, the timing of that wasn't right from... Yeah. And some of corporate time. America, like I know Stryker and, and Johnson & Johnson have been very supportive of that. They have dinner programs and, and mentorship programs right now for... Yeah, I mean, I, we couldn't have gotten to where we are today without the support of some, you know, very forward-thinking uh, people um, in in corporations related to neurosurgery who have been, you know, very supportive because, you know, all of these efforts take, you know, support mostly, you know, the dollar, the holy dollar to make them happen. So we've been yeah. very fortunate in that. Now, I don't want to offend our listeners because I don't know how what percentage is going to be neurosurgeons. But even the lowest quartile neurosurgeons are going to be one percenters, just almost by definition, right? And that's just, 
you know, that's just the nature of our field. But do you guys sense that, and I get in discussions pretty heated with some of our female colleagues at Miami about this, do you feel like there is a pay disparity between, you know, men and women neurosurgeons across the board in America? Yes, it's proven. And explain it's, that it, to me. It's proven across medicine, it's proven across academics, and um, we have data on women and neurosurgeons that we follow very much you know, the, the national statistics, which is, you know, across all professions, women earn about 75 to 80 cents on the dollar. And when I say professions, I don't mean, you know, steel workers necessarily or school teachers where, you know, the pay salaries are pretty much standard. Um, but a, a, across professions. In medicine, it's about the same, about 72 to 75 cents on the dollar. And in neurosurgery, it's about the same. But most people are going to RVU or productivity-based measures like we we switched Miami immediately to that like overnight and so our salaries are based almost entirely on the number of RVUs you do right so do you think that's a remedy or do you think that's a problem or maybe you can dive into that a little deeper because it's a complex conversation I think we all would say, you know, the RVU system has its pluses and minuses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it depends what value um, you're bringing to the department. And value is not necessarily just RVUs. Um, When you think about a lot of the program directors uh, that you know, um, you know, oftentimes, how is that compensated in? Or, you know, researchers, um, how do you figure that in? And so I think it depends a lot about your leadership and what the values are for your appropriate department. And, and Mike, you're, you're right that if it came down to, you know, you did 10 microdiscectomies and I did 10 microdiscectomies, that's the same RVUs. Yes, it, that creates an even playing field in that way. Um, but that's not the whole story. I mean, across the RVU system, you know, a cardiac ultrasound and a vaginal ultrasound, which might take the same amount of time and the same expertise, the cardiac ultrasound, and I'm using generic terms because we have mm-hmm. a lot of lay listeners out there, would probably have RVUs about tenfold what Over the vaginal one. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, so when you look at the RVU system, the RVU system in general has inherent gender bias. And both in terms of in, not in just the, it's it's a feel not just in terms of whether it's done on a female but the things that are more traditionally done by women in medicine have traditionally been assigned lower RVUs and within, uh, give, give us an example like you're talking about peds versus spine or well and then I was going to say in neurosurgery um, you know spine you know the RVUs for those are are largely newer as well as the endovascular ones and they're they're remarkably higher than almost all the pediatric RVUs, functional RVUs, um, you know, as well as uh, even the tumor RVUs are much lower. And women are disproportionately, women neurosurgeons are disproportionately represented. Why is that? Like, why is it that there's women gravitate to or selected for whatever or pushed into, like, pediatrics versus... Vascular or something like that. What, what, is that too long? <clears throat> no, it's a, compli- it's a complicated answer, you know. So I think just as I said, you know, I went to train someplace where there were already women there. That draws women to a specialty when they see people up on the podium that look like them, that they can emulate, that have achieved their goal. So I think there's role models in some in, in functional neurosurgery I can speak to. There's, there's a lot of female role models uh-huh. that have been helpful. I also think there are some um, 
thoughts uh, by different neurosurgeons about which jobs are better for which sexes for whatever reason. So they steer people, they mentor them into some field or another. Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of conversations that happen both, you know, subconsciously with bias or, um, you know, I've been guilty of it. When you think about the lifestyle associated with endovascular, that's very different than a lifestyle associated with functional. So, you know, I think we just have to be aware of these things. Right. I mean, I would echo what Julie said, but I would, you know, there's so many subtle things. I mean, endovascular, you're being exposed to radiation all the time. And if you're contemplating one or two pregnancies that, you know, whether it's during your fellowship or during your residency or during your early career, you know, that's something that's a, that's a physical, tangible challenge. I mean, I know there's protections and all the rest of it, but you probably wouldn't if, I don't know whether you're married, but you know, you probably wouldn't want your spouses to be exposed. I stopped having children because of that. I wanted six children, but I stopped at three because I'm exposed to so much radiation. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, imagine if it was your spouse, would you want them in, you know, uh, an angiography suite all day, every day? So that's one thing. Spine, all the instruments are designed for men. And so my hands do not fit the, I mean, I do mostly spine and I do minimally invasive spine. I do complex spine. I mean, I'll do deformity, but I can tell you none of the instruments fit my hands. And so, you know, that creates another thing. But the world of spine too is, I mean, especially because there's a lot of orthopedic spine people yeah. as well. I mean, it, it's, it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not very they're not as welcoming to women on a lot of levels and it's not really considered whatever. Well, so you, it's a process and it's time and, and it, it's not going to change overnight, but with more and more women spine surgeons, you know, Marjorie Wang and, you know, there's, I mean, a few others that are, you know, really notable that have, you know, risen to position and it, it starts to gather some more momentum. So I, I'll probably that. get a lot of hate, hate email about this, but <laughs> I, I'll push back just a little bit. But I, I, I listened to this great study done at Stanford on Uber drivers. And they, you know, Uber is sort of, I believe, agnostic to gender in terms of the, the riders or the drivers and all that. And there is actually a pay disparity between male and female Uber drivers. And they have billions of rides. They know exactly where people went. They know how much was paid. They know the, all the details, right, the ratings, the tips, do you think men or women, like most, most people would say, most people think that women make more driving Uber than men? And it is true, they're tip more. But there is a disparity, and they've actually analyzed exactly why. And why is it? Oh, well, you, do you want me to spill the beans? Sure. Okay. So, so there's three elements that, that make it. About 20, I, I apologize, I have a misquote because I didn't read it just recently. But the first component is about 25%, is that men are more willing to drive at times and places that women won't go to. Okay, so dangerous areas, urban areas, 2 a.m., stuff that, like that. That, that's very, that mirrors the radiation exposure right. for endovascular. Very it's, similar, the same, right? it's the same thing. It's, not, it's something that you just can't get through. And the second part is the lifespan of the Uber driver. And this is, this is also similar, which is that the average driver, I want to say the average driver drives for seven months, I think, right? The average man drives for like nine, and the average woman drives for five. So they get better at it because the first month, you're just trying to figure out the software on how to pick up people and how to do it and make money, right? Because right. it's complicated. So that's about another 25% or so. And then the last biggest chunk, and this is this absolutely resonates with us, men drive faster. <laughs> so that difference of a 4% difference in, in road speed translates into the 15% pay gap or something, if you will. So they're picking up and dropping off more people. And so you can make the argument, and this I'm not making a political commentary on this or social commentary, but it, it is 
quite similar to what we're facing, but there are structural parts to it. I totally right. agree with. Right. So, I mean, a lot of the corollaries between Uber and neurosurgery, or actually professional women in general, is, you know, the studies show that across the U.S., women perform about 75% of the duties in the home. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, you know, again, that's the, that, that's an, it's, it's sort of an, I'm not sure which of those three elements you mm -hmm. want to correlate it to with Uber, but if you've got another, you know, 0.7 FTE to go home to, that means that, you know, women maybe are working 0.95 FTEs in neurosurgery because they still have another 0.7 to go home to. Mm -hmm. So the total woman FTE is, you know, 1.65. You know, men get that 20, you know, 0.2 FTE at home. So they can work one FTE at work, two at home, 0.2 at home. Their total FTEs is 1.2. The women are working 1.65 but maybe they've shaved off that little bit at work because they don't have any choice because they've got this second job they have to yeah. go home to. And just to you know, kind of speak to that, I've been <clears throat> very lucky. My husband takes care of all home responsibilities. And um, you know, over the last year, my mother was in hospice, and she was in New Jersey, and I had to drive back and forth and take care of that while my husband was taking care of my home here. And I will tell you, you know, having that added, it's not just the time. It's the emotion, you know, think about like when something happens wrong with your kid, right, yeah. or anything, you know, it, it eats at you yeah. as opposed to, you know, some of the, the rigmarole of the workplace. And, you know, so that really was eye-opening for me because... I fancy myself somebody that can do very many things, and I was like, oh, I can just add that on. And it's not like that because it takes away from things. So that has helped me empathize a lot with situations. I also want to make one point about the driving faster thing. Men and women behave differently a lot of the time. So as you were you know, teasing Deb and I about how we started off this yeah, session, right. I've seen that when I train female residents. We'll do the same dance in the, in the operating room, mm. where you know, and it was one of the best residents I've ever seen. And so I actually stepped aside to let her just do it because I knew that we were going to have that dynamic. And I think female residents tend to do that with male attendings as well. So I think we need to think about how we train people differently. Yeah. So having talked about kind of the history and both of your experiences as women in neurosurgery, I'm sitting here at the start of my own career. Let's kind of do a 180 and look towards the future. Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? I hope you're optimistic. What do you think about the future for women in neurosurgery? I think the, the big, biggest thing that can benefit us as a society is just empathizing with one another, whether you're a man or a woman, and seeing how you're coming at things. So, you know, sometimes when I get heated, you know, keeping in mind that I'm a female neurosurgeon that's gone through whatever I've gone through, and so maybe putting that in perspective, but at the same point, you know, I need to reflect and say, okay, maybe this isn't gender-based. So, you know, I think if we can empathize with one another, um, and I know that sounds kind of, you know, Kumbaya. Uh, but you know, at the same point, I really think it's important. We're in San Francisco, flower right, power. Right, right. I mean, the point at which I realized that um, what I was doing was, you know, uh, setting the stage and opening the door for the next generation, and that you know I was never going to likely be able to, you know, walk into the promised land. You know, it's like I, I was the 40 years in the desert, and I was, uh, you know, I, I was paving the way for the next generation. 
Um, you know, and so I do see remarkable changes. You know, we're approaching the 16% mark, um, which means that we're an actual minority now as opposed to acting as individuals and you know clearly more men have wives or spouses that were who are professionals and and more men are are feeling um, that they need to take a greater role in their families and their children's lives so I see changes and so in, in that in that way I'm I'm optimistic so um, let, let's wrap up maybe you could give a message because we have many female listeners to the young women out there that are contemplating neurosurgery as a career just a quick you know, shout out to them, what would you say to them? Follow your dreams, you know, if you feel passionate about something, don't let somebody else tell you that you shouldn't do it. There's no other career that I could imagine myself doing, and, you know, if I can do it, they can do it, Um, and just find people around you to keep reinforcing that message and supporting the fact that you really can do this. Great. Amen. Yeah, well, thank you for your time, yes. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you.